Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. We are going to get started here. This week, I'd like to take a little bit of the Torah portion, Lech uh, Lecha, and uh, show you a, a little bit of something there in the promise to Abraham that is going to help us to match it with what we've been learning about the footsteps of Messiah, because we know the footsteps of Messiah, they are linked to the Song of Songs, because it is, and, and I'll show you this in the lesson today, the Song of Songs is considered the Holy of Holies of the Bible, that there is a certain intimacy that's revealed there that's that's not revealed in a, that particular way in other books of the Bible. Uh, but I'm going to show you how this coming up from the wilderness is related to the prophecies that are given to Abraham in this week's Torah portion, Lech Lecha, because it goes beyond just the promise of the physical land. I mean... You know, if it's just a physical land, why would you go through all that hardship? Why not just let whoever wants it have it? You know, if it's just rocks and dirt and stones and uh, trees and things. But if it's something much deeper, if it's something much more significant, perhaps it is worth hanging on century after century after century to that promise. So there's a there's a parable in the Midrash Rabbah that tries to help us understand what was the function of the Mishkan in the wilderness. Why did he take the children of Israel out of Egypt, which remember he just did with Abraham and Sarah. He takes them out in the wilderness. Uh, she does mess up a little bit there with that golden calf thing and giving an evil report of the land. But for 40 years, pretty much, she's walking around the wilderness with her father, who is also her king. And this parable just, it gives us some bullet points to maybe help us understand the relationship of what was happening here. Because if you'll remember that the plagues of Egypt were very public, they were very raw, very open. The whole world was watching. When the Reed Sea parted, the world was watching. When Pharaoh's chariots were destroyed, the world was watching because actually the divine chariot had just destroyed the chariots of Abaddon that you see in the book of Revelation. But here's the parable. And of course, the king's daughter is going to be Israel, kind of goes back to the, the daughters of Jerusalem. The parable as it goes, I'm going to read the whole parable to you, just give you the bullet points. When, when the king's daughter was young and immature, he lavished love upon her openly and in public, like the dividing of the Reed Sea, like the, the plagues to, to take her out of Egypt. And he would always speak to her when they met in the public places. His, his power and his presence were manifest. She never had to wonder where he was because wonderful things were happening all the time. But when she grew, these open displays of affection were below her dignity and her age. And he spoke to her and showed her affection more privately. So what does he do? He takes the children of Israel out into a wilderness. It's a little more private out there. Uh, they're not surrounded by the Egyptians. 
So out in this wilderness, maybe publicly, it looked as though he had abandoned her and inflicted harsh discipline upon her. But he was still found by her in the private place, or as Yeshua called it, the closet of prayer. This is where you can always find him. But this discipline in the parable, it was also love because he wanted to mature his daughter. He wanted to test her. And sometimes maturing and testing requires us to go through a season of suffering or a season of grief. But she continued to grow. And when she matured into adult, the king wants to prepare her to take her place in the kingdom, to begin to rule and reign with him. And he wants to discuss these weighty matters of the kingdom with her. So what does he do? He had a special pavilion built where they could hold their conversations without distraction or disturbance. Uh, their conversations were royal conversations. They were conversations of importance about the kingdom. She's learning how to rule and reign with him at this point. And so they say, like, kind of like in this parable, the Mishkan was built in a place where Israel could grow to maturity where he could communicate with his people privately, where he could collaborate with them, prepare them. They're not going to have the prying eyes of the nations right up in their business, even though the nations are aware of what's going on. They're not just all up in their business. Uh, that would be disrespectful to both the king and to his daughter. And so these are their private times. He can instruct them. He can empower them to rule the nations with his authority. And so in the parable, what we find out is this special holiness of Jerusalem and the temple, they were reflected in this early private relationship of maturity in the Mishkan, back in the wilderness. And while the prophecies tell us that in the future time, when the temple is functioning, that the nations will bring their glory into the city at the appointed times. Well, just remember, at this point, the 12 tribes are set up at the 12 gates of Jerusalem. Remember, the king's daughter has been prepared. This is where she has spent her time. This is what she has devoted her life to. She's devoted her life to preparation, to rule and reign with Messiah. And so the nations will first have to make it past the city gate. And each city gate, there will be judges there from that appointed tribe where they can examine those coming in and make sure they're prepared to do that, that they're not dragging some abomination into the holy city. So there, there will be nations out there who will have a, a kind of glory that they will bring to the holy city, but it's going to be the king's daughter, it's going to be Israel, who is rewarded with residency who is rewarded with abiding in the presence. Like Yeshua said, I'm bringing my reward with me. I'm going to come quickly. If you're preparing with me in the Mishkan of the wilderness, then he can reward us with a more intimate place in the presence of the king. And so ruling and reigning with King Messiah, the king's daughter helps administer the king's decrees and, and his justice according to the word she's learned. And what she learned is she learned Moses and those clouds of glory. They're also called Sukkot of glory. So the clouds that Israel walked in, in the wilderness from the time she left Egypt, those were called Sukkot of glory or clouds of glory. And that's where she learned Moses in preparation. All right. So let's just take another look at it. 
A canopy has King Solomon made for him from the wood of Lebanon. Its pillars he made of silver. Its covering was gold. Its seat was purple wool. Its inner side was decked with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. And notice there that this decoration that went on in the traveling chair, it wasn't just decorated. It was decorated with love. And this very much describes the building of the Mishkan in the wilderness, how Israel, they were just so in love and and so grateful that the king had forgiven them, that Moses had to tell them, stop bringing things, stop bringing things. We've got too much uh, to build the Mishkan. But everybody's heart was right. It was in the right place. And this is what he's looking for in the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, this is where you're going to have to go do your own homework. We don't have time to read through the entire chapter of Exodus 26, the entire chapter of Exodus 26, which is going to describe the Mishkan, right? But if you read that whole chapter, then it's going to start to make sense. This is more brief, what we're getting in the Song of Songs, describing it. However, you can see the big story in Exodus 26. So what we're seeing in Song of Songs is kind of a glimpse a condensed glimpse of Exodus 26, right? So let's work through some of that. The the Midrash is kind of analyzing for us, helping us make the leap back and forth here. It says, from the wood of Lebanon is like that which is stated, he shall make the planks of the tabernacle of acacia wood standing erect, right? So they're standing up like, you know, a tree stands up, well, he wants them to also be erect in the Mishkan, because remember, the, the parts of the Mishkan represent people. That's from Exodus 26, 15. And then it says, it's pillars he made of silver. But it says, these are the pillars of the tabernacle courtyard on which the lace curtains were hung. As it states, its covering was gold. This too refers to the tabernacle. As it states, you shall make a partition of turquoise, purple, and scarlet wood and linen twisted, right? So there's going to be a curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And according to Exodus 26, 32, it's kind of seated on the poles that are placed between the four pillars, right? The hooks and the bands of the pillars were silver. So you can see, even though we've got a a little tiny description of the tabernacle of the Mishkan in the Song of Songs, we can go back again to Exodus 26 and start to say, oh, well, it's, it's pointing over here. It wants you to remember this. It wants you to remember this. It wants you to remember this about the Mishkan. Like where it says, you shall make a partition of turquoise, purple, and scarlet should be wool and linen twisted that's being compared to our verse where the seat was purple wool. And so you might say, no, wait a minute, that doesn't match exactly. Song of Songs just says purple wool. But in Exodus 26, it says it's supposed to be turquoise and scarlet wool. Well, they say the wool is only mentioned because remember, this is going to be a more condensed form. It's more of a song, actually. The purple is only mentioned because it was considered the choicest of the partitions materials. But for those of us who trust in Messiah Yeshua, we see a messianic application here because we know purple represents Messiah. He was the full blue of heaven. He was the full red 
earth human. And so he was fully purple. He was 100% of both. Purple is a color that's 100% blue and 100% red. And so we have this beautiful picture here then of Messiah being enthroned on the chariot that they're, they're using this purple seat cover to denote the presence of Messiah, the one who was both heaven and earth, which is an awesome picture, I think. Right. So let's let's kind of break down. What is this seat anyway? The seat is a purple wool. Now, it's not the normal word for seat, which is kise, or kise could be a throne. Those would be a fixed structure, more or less. Instead, this particular seat is called a merkav, a merkav, which can mean not just a place to be seated, but it can also be a place for rapid and agile movement. So let's think of the Mishkan in the wilderness. It was a movable structure. How fast could it move? It could move just as fast as the children of Israel could move. Could it move in any direction? It could, even though we know that the tribe of Judah typically started out on the journey. We also know that because of the arrangement of the tribes around the Mishkan, as long as the cloud moved and the ark moved, they could go north under the banner of Dan. They could go east under the banner of Judah. They could go south under the banner of Reuven. They could go west under the banner of Ephraim. They could go in any direction without having to move the entire camp. All that was required was Judah had to take the first steps, but the camp was absolutely movable. And so as many people as there were in that camp, they were still capable of very agile movement. Uh, it would be very difficult to move a city that fast. If you think about it, it can be difficult to move an army that fast. An army would have to be prepared in such a way that depending on which way they needed to move or which side they were attacked on, that they could very rapidly move and meet that threat. So what is a Merkav? You might have heard that word before. You might have heard about the Merkava, that mystical chariot in Ezekiel. And that's exactly what it is. It's a Merkav. It means a chariot or a riding seat. And by the way, it can also be a saddle. And scripture, there's not a differentiation made between whether you drive a horse in a chariot or whether you ride on the back of a horse. It's just a riding place. And you get the, the rakev, rakev, which just means to ride something. Um, the rakevet in Israel and in Jerusalem, it's the train station because that's where people used to get on the train and ride. But you get the idea. It's, it's to ride on something for rapid movement. And you did read that in Ezekiel. You read about the Merkavah and this chariot that's powered by the four, they're called living creatures. In Hebrew, they're called the Chayot. Chayot. Chay is living. And there's four of them, so they're called the Chayot, the four living creatures of Adonai's throne. And whatever he wants done, Whatever his decree is from the throne, they just roll right out there and do it. 
and they can roll in any direction, it says, without turning. How is that possible? Well, again, because of the positioning. You've seen the graphic that I do on the rivers of Eden and how it's it's wheels within wheels. And so the Garden of Eden was basically the makeup of wheels within wheels when we study the four rivers of Eden. At whatever's going on here, it's a place for the Holy Presence to be able to move, to ride rapidly. Like Yeshua said, I'm coming quickly. And that's one of the first images that we get in the book of Revelation, of course, is the four horsemen, right? If you haven't done workbook two, you need to do workbook two. If you're interested in the chariots and the four horsemen, it's it's worth it to go through it and just take a lot of time and pretty much just learn the symbols. Because if you see a chariot in scripture, you're probably looking at a situation where there's somebody crossing from realm to realm. It's like Pharaoh's chariots. He definitely crossed into a different realm. He went back down to Abaddon. And you see these supernatural creatures coming up from Abaddon in Revelation. John has a hard time describing them because they're not normal horses. They have certain appearance like scorpions and serpents and horses and you know, they have riders and, but they're not normal creatures. These are creatures reserved for judgment. So on this chariot, what will you see? Well, typically like um, Philip, he'll be a good example. Philip, he's walking along. He helps the, the Ethiopian man who's trying to understand the scroll of Isaiah. He gets up in the chariot with him. And then all of a sudden Philip's in another town. And that's crazy, unless you understand what the chariot represents in scripture, that it represents crossing between realms. And, and we'll look at Elijah. What does it mean? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It, it's There's a crossing of a realm there. So it makes perfect sense. And in fact, Philip's name means horseman. So it wasn't random. It was very. It was a very clear message to those of us who are looking through, you know, the words of Scripture and saying, "There's not one idle word here. Let me figure out what this means." So back to the midrash, we see that the king is seated in the sense that he's steering or driving the structure from that space. Right. It says through the glory of God that rests between the two cherubim atop the holy ark. The Torah scroll written by Moses rests in the holy ark along with the tablets. The ark rests in the holy of holies. And so we know this is where the voice of Adonai spoke from between the two cherubim from the ark in the holy of holies. So this is an inner place. This is where the king is seated and he's steering and driving the structure. Because remember, the cloud had to move and then the ark had to move. That's what moved the camp, the cloud and the ark. So the king is the one driving this. And remember, a verse said its inner side was decked with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. That's thought to describe two things. First of all, those who labor in the study and the practice of the Torah in that holiest of holy places, they are seeking that Torah scroll to be people of integrity. They are seeking it, you know, uh, what does it say? More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. What are they doing? These are the daughters of Jerusalem who are bedecking those inner places with gold, 
And then it's also thought to allude to the divine presence, which dwells in the Mishkan in a heavier way than it does the general camp. And that's why I say, can we move past the salvation question and start making more disciples? How, how are we helping the kingdom if we're running around getting people saved, but yet not teaching them how to move away from their sin? not even teaching them what sin is because we don't want them to feel bad. Well, sometimes we have to say what sin is to make us feel bad enough to quit. Like Yeshua said, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. (laughs) So cut it out. You're not going to drag your sin into the holy place. You're not going to drag your sin into his divine presence. You're not going to go boldly into the throne room in filthy garments. Yeshua told parables about that. And it wasn't good that that sort of Arrogance cannot dwell in his presence. He has places for arrogant people. We don't want to be one of them. So this heavier presence is reserved. It's not that the presence wasn't in the general camp. It was. It definitely was. But we know that it was much heavier in the holy place and in the holy of holies. In fact, it was so heavy, if you didn't have the right to be in there, it could kill you. I mean, it would consume you. So you you had to be in the right state of heart and mind and body. That heavier presence, again, who are the daughters of Jerusalem? Those who love his word. Those who love what's written on that Torah scroll. They don't see it as onerous. They don't see it as restricting. They instead see it as, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad that I have these boundaries in my life because now I know how to please my king. That's the difference. So this divine presence, you might sometimes hear it called the, I guess maybe in the evangelical world, the Shekinah glory, not exactly right, but the Shekinah, which comes from the same root as Mishkan, which is Shekan. So that divine presence or the glory of Adonai, yeah, it did reside in the, the general camp. And that's why the camp of Israel was known as as clouds of glory or Sukkot of glory. But why was the presence so much more powerful? Well, the rabbis believe that the courtyard, the outer part, symbolizes the world. And they they give some verses here, like 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, where it talks about how when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord Build the house of the Lord. So it's having a different effect on the priests because they're in the holier places of the house. Uh, it's affecting everyone, but but the priests who are closer to those intimate places, it's definitely heavier. Uh, they quote Ezekiel 10:4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the Karuv to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud. And the courtyard was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord, right? So we can we can see that heaviness. Exodus 40, 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See how heavy it is in those more intimate places? Throughout their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight 
of all the house of Israel. So the, the pattern we see is that, yes, there's glory everywhere in the camp, but the heaviest concentration is felt in the place of love. And from that area, then it extends outward. Then it goes out to the general camp. And then, like they're saying, out into the courtyard. And from there, it goes out into the world. Right? And that's why it's so important for us to, to maintain our mishkan. You know, Paul preached, maintain your mishkan in holiness because this is how the, the courtyard or how the world around you is going to be able to experience the presence of Adonai because it'll be heavier on you, but then it can extend outward. If you love his word, if you are lovingly inlaying his inner places with your obedience, then that you, you become this conduit basically for his presence to then extend out into the courtyard. Those places you, you take yourself into the world so that they can experience it. And hopefully it'll motivate them to say, hey, I want to experience those holy places too, where the presence is heavier. I know I've got to work on some things first. Again, that's not a salvation message. That's a work message. One thing is where it says the interior was lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. That word ratzaf in Hebrew, it means to fit together, to fit out, or to pattern, to fit together. Now, that should sound familiar to us if they're fitting something together with love, right? So we've got John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. These are the loving daughters of Jerusalem. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. So we have these loving daughters of Jerusalem fitting things together. At the very same time, they're being fit together. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the greater the love, the more beautiful the interior design where the daughters of Jerusalem, they kind of pave the way with their precious stones, their weavings that they do to create these, these phenomenal designs. This is a place for the divine presence to dwell. And you know, you might not think so, but those times when you just sit around talking about the Lord, talking about scripture, talking about what Yeshua has done for you, talking about the commandments themselves. I mean, that's what we do all day on Shabbat, basically, is sit around and talk about the commandments. And each person brings something in and contributes something to the conversation. It may not feel that spectacular to us, but these are acts of love. And when you do that, you're paving the way for the divine presence. You're weaving a place for the divine presence to dwell in you so that, again, when you go out into the courtyard of the world, the world can feel the divine presence that you have invited into you because you prepared, you paved the way. You functioned as one of those people who are piecing it together. 
said, well, I just, I feel like I'm inadequate. I don't understand enough. I don't know enough Hebrew. I don't know how to study the scriptures like so-and-so. Who cares? You're doing what you're doing with love and you're learning along the way. Sometimes if we were too good or we knew too much, we'd just get arrogant. And then we couldn't be in the divine presence anyway. We'd just be so proud of what we knew. He'd say, sorry, there's not room for us both in here. (laughs) So if he can keep you humble, like that humble acacia tree, and keep you loving his word, then you'll stay in those more intimate places, piecing together a suitable place for his presence to dwell in you. All right, so here's a reminder, if you can see this graphic, of the encampments of the 12 tribes of Israel, and you say, well, this, this looks a little more square. This doesn't really look like the four chariot wheels to me. Well, this is sometimes the best we can do <laughs> if we don't know how to do motion graphics and those sorts of things, but at least we can get the bones of it, right? We can get the idea of the four living creatures as the four wheels. We can see that divine presence in the interior, But we could also see that the four living creatures represented something very important. They represented the 12 tribes. So that's kind of the unwritten thing there. When you look at the the four chayot of the divine chariot of the Merkava, what they should represent to you in that interior is the 12 tribes, like those 60 mighty men surrounding. What are they doing? These are people who were learned in the word. They know how to to wield the sword of the word so that they can protect the camp. And so they can go any direction, right? All that has to happen is the cloud and the ark have to move. And these folks will know how to respond. But it's important to see not just the divine chariot as the four living creatures, but also the, the totality of it, which is going to be the 12 tribes. So just to review some things we've already covered. We know the 12 tribes encamped in the wilderness in very specific locations. We know these four divisions of those 12 tribes correspond to the directions of the four winds or the angelic powers that you read about in Revelation, the four chayot, the living creatures that speed. They're fast. They're like uh, lightning, right? Chashma uh, in modern Hebrew is electricity. It's the same sort of fire that Ezekiel talks about. So it's not like fire, fire, ash fire, it's chashmal, it's it's fast as electricity, like lightning. That's how fast they do his will. I wish I were that fast to do his will. Then you've got the inner encampments of the Kohanim and the Levites who are going to guard the approaches to the Mishkan. And they're also going to guard those places of the heavier presence near the altar fires, near the ark, the caravim. And then you've got the general appearance of the camp You can kind of see the little cloudy things around. So you can see the whole camp is in clouds of glory. And so when we see Yeshua returning in clouds of glory to collect those who are his, you can see the idea that he's collecting them back in to this divine chariot. That's part of their, what they were created to do. So the, the cycle of the feasts that Israel was learning at this point in the wilderness, they learned to link some things and they began to live out what we now see as feasts that are prophecy of the end gathering. We know this process begins at Passover, at Pesach for individuals and families. 
We know that you are considered sealed at Shavuot if you have been faithful, if you've overcome. And then you are transformed and you arise at Yom Teruah when the gathering begins there at the Feast of Trumpets. You will dine in the presence of the king for 10 days until the end of Yom HaKippurim, which is when the gathering will be completed. The gates will be closed. And then there's a kind of a little waiting period. As with the Jubilee year, those who have been taken from their places will be returned to their inheritance. They go back to their original land, which we would know, again, as the Garden of Eden. And from there, there's an eight-day period of feasting for those who have been engathered or Sukkot. At the very same time, there would be judgments going on in the earth, in the natural earth. So we can see the Mishkan is a kind of a fast-moving chariot where the divine presence dwells. We can see the four encampments forming its wheels, as Ezekiel tried to tell us. There's some hints to this. If we go back to where Pharaoh promoted Joseph, it uses a a word here for chariot related to a word we're interested in, the Merkav. So it says that Pharaoh had Joseph ride in his second chariot, Merkavat Hamishneh, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Now, in Pharaoh's second chariot, was the first chariot in our question, you know, in terms of Israel, was that the one in the wilderness and where there'll be a second chariot? I don't know. That that goes back to that's going to be a great Bible study. But Uncleos, who would translate into Aramaic, he's translating Baldani or Avrech as Av. Father of the king, Rech, which is Aramaic for king. And so when Rashi commented on it, he said, a father, an av, and wisdom, despite being tender or rach in years, one whose wisdom transcends his years. Well, that should take you right to Passover with Yeshua at about the age of 12. And he's just wowing you know, the teachers of the Torah. Even though he was tender in years, his wisdom transcended those years, making him a type of Joseph who would ride in that second chariot. And people were required to bow the knee before him. And it says he set him over all the land of Egypt. Remember, Egypt represents the world, the whole world. It's the wilderness of the peoples. So pretty cool in terms of prophecy, once you start to recognize a few symbols. So that's our question. Is Mashiach a father? Is Messiah a father or is he a son? I just turned public on YouTube today a teaching on that, going back to the time of Joseph. I think it's Vayechi, Vayechi, Torah portion Vayechi. And why is Yosef? Here's a good question. Why is Yosef the first mention of someone going into a Merkava, a chariot, even though it's the second chariot to the king? Well, it's interesting here because we're going to look at what a chariot represents, transferring between two realms, the realm of the natural earth and then the supernatural, the realm that is not seen with the natural eye. Going back to our feasts, remember there's four species that you're supposed to take at Sukkot. We call this the Lulav. And they are said to correspond to the four patriarchs. And you say, wait a minute, there's only three patriarchs. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, the Midrash says that Yosef is the fourth. He's the willow branch. 
that he actually belongs to the generation of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. And if that interests you, then again, go back in and check out that Torah portion Vayechi on YouTube that explains a little bit more about what's going on with Yosef as being a firstborn. It's a, it's a long discussion of the firstborn, but it makes a whole lot of sense in terms of understanding how Joseph was different from his brothers. So let's get into this chariot thing. Even though Pharaoh's chariots are infamous, the chariots known as the horsemen of Israel are these mystical transporters to heavenly places. One Midrash says that the, the horsemen of Israel or the charioteers of Israel are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why they're buried at Hebron. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had to be buried at Hebron because that is seen as an entryway, one of them, back into the Garden of Eden. And so when a righteous person dies, they are seen as the horsemen of Israel who will transport. I know that sounds very UFO-ish, but it's it's not. <laughs> it's just very biblical. They are those who transport that righteous, or what did he say? Be blameless. Be that person of integrity. They'll transport you to the garden. They say one of the first things that happens is that you sit down and you have a meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, and Yeshua even referred to that, how many are going to come from the east, west, north, and south and sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you Sadducees, because you don't believe in the resurrection, you're going to see it from afar, but you're not going to be able to enter in. They'll still have a soul presence, a soul consciousness, but they will not be able to cross into the Garden of Eden. That would be, I mean, just like the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is conscious of Lazarus, but he can't go where he is. Even though it doesn't look like that far, there's a great gulf between them. So they say that's what happens when you cross over, you sit down, you have that meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that a real meal? I don't know. I don't know what that kind of dining involves. And then while you wait with the other souls under the altar, because see the lower garden is seen as, as a mirror of the upper garden above. And so in that sense, you're under the altar. You, you wait under the throne because his feet would be there in the garden all the way down to the earth, which the garden is just above the earth. It, it's hard to describe it because it's a realm, but it's just, it, it's not that far away. It's no higher than the height a dove would fly. That's how high it is. It says the armies of God march in the tops of the balsam trees. Balsam trees are not that tall. That realm is not that far away. So at that point, you're, it's understood that you're taught. You, you just go into learning mode while you await the resurrection of the dead. So you can get your body back. And then so you can see all your friends, which, you know, in your generations, your friends tend to join you, hopefully. Uh, but you're waiting on other generations until that last soul is brought in. So let's look at a couple of mentions here of the chariots. Second Kings 2.12, Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Eliyahu no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. So you can see he tears in pieces. Is this a, an expression of mourning? Yes. He realizes that Eliyah, Elijah, Eliyahu has just crossed into the other realm, which we would consider death. However, 
it's it's odd though because Eliyahu is not dead before he's transported. He's taken alive. Nevertheless, Elisha tears his clothes in two pieces to show, okay, now we're in two different realms. I can't go where he is. Then in uh, 2 Kings 13, 14, now when Elisha is getting ready to die, it says, when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Yehoash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, the Rekev. It's, it's a transporter. Is it just a symbol? I don't know. Whatever's going on here, when Elisha sees it, he knows that Eliyahu is about to cross over. And here, that was the thing that Elijah told him. He says, if you can see it, you can have my mantle. If you can't see into that realm, you can't have it. That's the, that's the question. Do we see into that realm? And then when Elisha is ready to cross over, even though he's not going to go up alive, well, let's say, even though he's not going to go up without dying first, the king of Israel still recognizes that the chariots of Israel and its horsemen are coming. And so that my father, my father, that's significant going back to my father. But who is my father? That's why I want you to go back and watch that video on Joseph. Uh, being the father, my father, my father, my father is the son is the father. That's the principle of the firstborn is the firstborn is the one who most closely resembles the father. And that's what they said about Joseph. They said he was the spitting image of his father, Jacob. He was his father. And so you pass that blessing down to the one who most closely resembles you. So it would be a, a kind of a cryptic way of saying, you know, the holy one and the son in the chariot, right? And then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel in the natural world. So there's all sorts of implications right there. But especially when you say my father, my father, it makes you think of two separate time periods as well in terms of prophecy. Ezekiel talks about the chariot. Ezekiel talks about the Merkabah. Uh, a little bit different between the Egyptian two-wheeled chariot and the heavenly Merkavah, because the heavenly Merkavah has four wheels, just like it had four living creatures. But as we read in Ezekiel, you'll see that it's kind of interchangeable that sometimes he's talking about a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And then in another place, he'll substitute the karuv, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, for the ox. So you can see the interchangeability of Joseph as the man and the ox, because the, the Karuv, it's, it's got a kind of a, well, watch the video. It'll make more sense. But it does have kind of that, um, say, humanoid appearance to it. So what we're saying, the tribes, they need to be driven to unity by the divine presence. He needs to be in the driver's seat. His will needs to be that which holds the reins to the 12 tribes in the wilderness. And so under King Messiah, this is his job. It is his job to collect the tribes and to get them steered in the right direction, to get them headed back to Jerusalem. Even though they're in the wilderness, his divine presence, it can guide them toward the holy city. And you'll notice in scripture, even though Jacob had a name change, his name never quite went away. His name comes from Akev, which 
means heal or something which will follow. And so by extension, even though Joseph is most like Jacob, even though the firstborn is the one most like the father, every one of Jacob's sons are extensions of him. It wasn't just Joseph camped in the wilderness. There were 12 tribes. There were 12 extensions of Jacob in the wilderness. And here's an example. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right, so we know Shiloh is the equivalent of Mashiach, Messiah. Mashiach ben Yosef is understood to be the one who will initiate an exile and die. But Yeshua did. He died, but he resurrected. And then as Mashiach ben David, he will rule. Both of those are seen as salvation. That we understand about the tribe of Judah. But let's look over here at God. Deuteronomy 33.20. Of God, he said, G-A-D, not God, G-O-D. Of God, he said, blessed is the one who enlarges God. He, um, he lies down as a lion and tears the arm, also the crown of the head. Then he provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved. And he came with the leaders of the people. He executed the justice of the Lord and his ordinances with Israel. Of Don, he said, Don is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. So Judah is not the only one that is connected with royalty. You can see the tribe of God here is connected to the crown, to the lion, the ruler's portion, the leaders of the people executing the justice of the ordinances. And then Don is a lion's whelp. We know that one of the, the types of Messiah came out of Don, which was uh, Samson. So we get this full picture of Mashiach by assembling the various blessings on the tribes, because each one of those tribes will have some ancillary blessing of royalty. So as we're looking at the divine chariot, we can see that each of the tribes has a part each has a portion. Each will judge by a gate of the holy city. You have to assemble the tribes in order to get the full picture, even of Mashiach. As long as the tribes are fragmented, the peoples are going to have difficulty seeing King Messiah. It's in our unity, right? It's in our unity that they're going to be able to see King Messiah. God, the tribe of God, is thought to speak of Eliyahu or Elijah. Remember, he disappeared with the horsemen of Israel, but it's understood that he will return and he will herald the coming of the Mashiach. In fact, they say Elijah will come three days before Messiah. And Elijah was from Gilad, the territory of God. He's going to be seen as a very fierce messenger and instrument of judgment. That cup of Elijah we put out at Pesach, that's a cup of wrath, by the way. That's, I know we make it fun with the kids and everything, but that's a, it's when you open that door, if Elijah's there, judgment has come. It's a serious time. But that, that helps us to understand what Yeshua was saying right here in John 17, 11 and 17, 21. You have to you have to pull the tribes together. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given to me, that they may be one even as 
we are. Remember, Joseph was like a father to Pharaoh. The son is the one who most closely resembles the father. This is that strange thing they say about the fourth part of the Lulav is Joseph with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he was simply the one with the strongest resemblance to Jacob. He was an extension of Jacob. There's a unity there. And then Yeshua in 1721, he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So now let's go back and look at this, where Yeshua talks about he and the Father are one. Now let's look at this. My Father, my Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. My Father, my Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. How are you transported into your inheritance? Your Father, your Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. That's how you're carried over. Yes, through the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, absolutely. But ultimately, the one who will resurrect you from the dead, when you cross over, to be absent from the body is to be present with your father, your father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. To walk like Abraham as a person of integrity. It's so that, you know, when you draw that last breath, that this is what you will see your father, your father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then you'll sit and dine and you'll wait and you'll be taught of Yeshua. He'll start filling in those learning gaps for you. But because you are a daughter of Jerusalem who lovingly inlaid the decorations to beautify a place in you for the presence of the Father, this is the reward that Yeshua brings quickly in a chariot. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.